I lost most of the principal because the stock almost doubled on us. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. To join me, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and sign up for our free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter where I share how to reduce risk and create, grow, and protect your wealth. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy, and I'm here with featured guests, Carter Malloy. Carter, are you ready to join the mission? Absolutely. Let me introduce you to the audience. Acre Trader CEO, Carter Malloy, grew up in Arkansas, farming family, and has had a lifelong passion for agriculture and investing. Before founding Acre Trader, he spent five years as part of the founding team of a successful global equity investment firm. Before joining in 2013, Carter was a managing director with Stevens Inc., a large private investment bank where he was an equity research analyst, a lot what I did, like what I did in my past. At Acre Trader, Carter has successfully raised over $60 million in Series B funding and grown from 20 employees to 120 employees across the company's two business divisions, which include Acre Trader, the farmland investing platform, and Acres, a land research platform. Carter, take a minute and tell us about the unique value that you are bringing to this wonderful world. Thanks, Andrew. That's a very personal question to start out. Uh, let's see. So the thing that I care most about, I'm going to put aside my family, which mm. is the you know, always number one, is I think about bringing value to the world. While I'm excited about investing in farmland, I think that bringing value to rural America and uh, rural communities around the world is incredibly important. What I focus on as a manager of a business is helping people to, to be the best version of themselves. And so helping all of us that I work with and the partners throughout our business to try to be more introspective and try to improve ourselves as much as we can so that we can all bring value. So I would hope that the people that I work with bring a lot more value to the world. And I expect that they will bring a lot more value to the world than I will individually. And that's really exciting to think about. It's interesting because when you think about business, you know, people like come to business, come to the job, deliver, you know, what you got to do and then go home and all that. And one of the things, you know, about living in Thailand is that you realize that Thais are not motivated by money. Money's important, but what really is motivating for them is to have a working environment with people that they like. And one of the things that I always found a little bit difficult when I first came to Thailand was that at Pepsi, where I worked in Los Angeles before I came here, on the weekends, you know, you'd never spend time with your colleagues. You would just go home and do your thing at night and all that. But in Thailand, it's really important that you spend some time together. And then they like to do like outings where the, everybody goes out together. And now I really started to understand that it is about developing personal relationships and how much better life can be and how much better work can be. I'm just curious when you're talking about like bringing out the best in yourself, how does that manifest in your life and in your business? For me, it tends to equate to growth, right? So trying to get better. And like, of mm -hmm. course, you're going to fail at that often and constantly, but continuously trying to improve oneself. For me, like what do I like in that personal growth story is I like to learn and I, I'm, I'm a big 
big researcher mm. and also enjoy practicing music and playing music personally outside of work. But both of those are sort of these never ending journeys that you can go on to try to better yourself and just get a little bit better. If you're working from a low base, uh, as I often am, especially within the world of music, it is uh, really, you know, it's, it's encouraging to get to make some advancements at points. Yeah. And I think for the listeners out there, it's just, it's a great motivation to say like, what is it that you are committing to improving yourself? And the other part of it is that it's never ending. There's always opportunities to improve. I'll just share a little personal story. When people ask in a group, you know how they say, tell us something surprising about you that nobody knows or something like that. I say, well, I was in, I was in jail when I was 14 years old and I almost killed myself at the age of 17. And then I went through three drug rehabs for the whole period of my high school senior year. And then I got clean and sober at the age of 17. And I've been sober for 40 years. And so even though medical or marijuana is pretty, pretty hip now in Thailand, you never find me consuming it just because it would set off a maelstrom in my life. But the point is, is that when I started really focusing on improving myself emotionally, you know, which is really what it was about rebuilding relationships and emotionally. I can say from the moment that I got sober and started to get clean and really start to see life differently till today at the age of 57 now, I just see that there's just always opportunity to continually improve. So I think it's an inspiration what you're saying for all of us, you know, to just say, how do we keep getting better? Well said. Yeah. So I appreciate that. Now, before we get into the big question of the podcast, I really want to understand more about what you're doing. So maybe you could just give us a breakdown of kind of how I, particularly because why should somebody be interested in investing in real estate? I mean, come on, there's a stock market and there's this and that. And, you know, why do I even need to be interested in that? And then how are you providing that platform and that opportunity for people to, to get involved? So the first is the why, in our case, not just real estate, but a rather obscure form of real estate called farmland. Right, land that grows food, fuel, and fiber. And so why get interested in that? Beyond the, the fact that it is interesting that we do those things and it's fun to be part of and fun to support rural communities and fun to support farmers and their growth. From a portfolio standpoint, most folks are familiar with this word diversification. And many folks are familiar with the idea of risk-adjusted returns. Right In the world of farmland, we are not out looking to make big hits, right? We're not out saying you're going to double your money next year. Like this is not a get rich quick scheme. In fact, we we try to view it as, as the opposite. We're looking for steady compounding of capital. And as most of the great investors of, of all time will tell you, that is a really powerful thing, right? The thing is an Einstein quote. It's like compounding of capital is the eighth wonder of the world. Mm. And that is a, what we're specifically after as a business is that slow and steady wins the race. And what would be, let's say, what would be your estimate of what someone would expect in farmland, I don't know, over the next, I don't know, 10 years? Is that 3%? Is that 8%? Is that 12%? What would you say is where you think the growth can be in that space? Well, the last 10 or 20 or 30 years has been like low double digits, call it, right? Yep. So something similar to the S&P or, or uh, real estate, the commercial real estate as an example, However, it has shown far less volatility than those asset classes. So it has mm. not moved up and down quite as much, just been a little more stable in how it's produced those returns. History is not necessarily how the future will play out, right? We always make sure that, to understand there's risks in investing in anything, but 
we're certainly intrigued by that that consistency of historical performance. So, and that even if the return was let's say five percent over the next ten years, and the volatility was almost zero, <laughs> very limited. I'm sure it's not a huge amount of volatility in that. That lack of volatility, basically, and maybe the countercyclical nature of that to some extent, can add a lot of value to a portfolio to reduce that the volatility in the overall portfolio and improve the risk-adjusted return. Tell us how you're providing like the ability for people to get access to that through the, the app and the, the software, the website, that type of stuff. Totally. So we talked about the why, why farmland. There's plenty more we can continue talking about, but mm-hmm. lots of resources on our website as well at acretrader.com. But the the how is fairly straightforward. Our team and our both team of underwriting professionals as well as data science professionals have really deep understanding of the world of land. And so they find a whole bunch of properties and occasionally one is interesting. And that moves through a very long process of, of underwriting, ultimately makes it to our website. And for the investor, what that means is rather than going and investing in a million dollar piece of property and then, hey, congrats, you get to manage a farm. Like it's a non-starter for most people we've ever met. Hmm. You can go on our website and invest maybe ten dollars or $20,000 into a single property and get exposure. And then our, our team takes care of things from there in terms of management, payments, et cetera. And you as the investor can make money in two different ways, right? One is through rent or, or revenue share with the farmer. So some income each year. And then you can also make money through appreciation, right? So the actual underlying value of that land goes up over time. Those two things combined is what has produced that return of 11 or 12% here in the last 20, 30 years. And that plot, let's just say you acquire a new big attractive plot that you've gone through all your research on, that plot, it's not like that plot enters a pool of many plots. It's that plot is a separate company and then you get a portion of that company or how does that explain how that works? That's correct. So a, a plot of land, so let's take a $5 million farm and a winery in California, we have, you know, as, as an example, that would go into a unique LLC. That LLC, then the investors that we call a special purpose vehicle, right? Or a, a, a corporation entity. So the investors would invest in that entity. So the entity owns title and has the, the direct ownership of the land, has common documents to govern it, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And the investors own a portion of that. And then what what happens with, are you looking like Warren Buffett looks for companies where there's a guy, a man or woman who's running it and will probably run it for the next 20 years, or are people selling this to you to exit what they're doing? So the way we approach the market typically is with a farmer. So it's the secret of our business. We are farmer first. We have a broker dealer as well that allows us to work with that farmer so that they have real financial interest in most of these, these deals. So. That is how we source is rather than us going and knocking on the door of landowners, we knock on the door of the farmer and say, hey, you want to grow your business? We're like an equity finance partner to you. So we can go out and help you acquire land. And that farmer may not have $3 million to go buy a neighboring parcel. He may have a little bit of money he wants to invest in that deal and also can earn some financial incentives as well along the way. So it's a very unique and very powerful program and alignment of incentive between farmers and investors. That's interesting because if you're focusing, some people will, will imagine that you'd be focusing on just finding land and good land and doesn't matter who's doing that. But the point that you're talking about is like, how do we find good farmers who want to expand what they're doing, provide them the capital needed to do that? 
and then let them get on with what they're doing. So in a sense, you're investing in, you know, an entrepreneur. You got it. We're investing in business people or investing yeah. alongside business people, I should say. Absolutely so. I have one of my clients in Thailand. What they do is they they bring their technology to landowners and they basically say, we're going to grow corn on your land. And you just give us the biggest plot that you have. We've got our equipment and it's within a certain catchment area so that our equipment, we're going to be rotating around and we're super efficient. We don't burn the crops. We don't leave any waste there. We pack it up on bales. We use that in our own facility for biofuel and all that. So what they're looking for is kind of, you know, a landowner that wants to continue to own the land, but that wants to generate more income out of it. Does that model exist in, in America or how does that, how does it work in America for that? Yeah, in, in many places, so about 40% of U.S. farmland is rented, right? So non, non-owner non operated. So that's like a trillion dollars of farmland. It's a very large amount where that is rented out. So, and, and I, that's often like, just like the building that I sit in today, I, I here in downtown Fayetteville, Arkansas, I love the place that I work. I don't own the building. We have a business inside of the building, but we rent this building from somebody else that owns it. Mm. One other question before I get into the big question of the podcast, because I just find it fascinating what you're doing. And you know a bit about Thailand, and we, we talked about that before we turn on the recorder. One of the things about Thailand that I could see is that what was happening was, and it happens in all the development of countries where people move from farms to factories. And then we get basic infrastructure in place. And then all of a sudden you get a 10 year boom in an economy. It happened in Thailand. It happened in Vietnam. It's happened in China. Now China's growth is slowing. And now you got all these people in the factories and all of a sudden you realize, whoa, we don't have many people to run these farms and the family farms in Thailand. It's almost all small scale farms. Could be 300 years that that family has been farming that plot. And when I first came to Thailand, I was like, oh, this needs to be consolidated and it needs to be bring commercial farming. And as I've gotten older, I've realized there's some downsides to commercial farming, whether it's related to efficiencies, related to chemicals, related to, you know, that type of stuff. But when we had the the pandemic reaction in the world where governments were shutting down companies, businesses, economies, one of the things that happened was that millions of Thai people in Bangkok flocked to the bus station. And they got on buses and they went back to their family plot. We don't have a social security system here. We don't have that kind of thing that's a safety net. But what they do have is their small little plot that they're barely hanging on to and their grandpa and grandma or mother or fathers. And I now all of a sudden see that there is some value in helping farmers maintain and farming families maintain their you know, their plots. And I'm just curious, like you're in a much more advanced situation, of course, in America, but I'm just curious about your your thoughts on on that whole topic. So we've seen that, you know, the folks moving out of rural America for a hundred plus years, right? With mechanization plus urbanization, mechanization on the farm and then urbanization trends in general. Mm. What's fascinating is the extreme majority, like extreme, extreme majority of farmland plots here are the same. They're family owned. They've been in families for generations. And we're like generally very happy about that, right? I think it's, it's great to have, when we say, say business earlier as, as an entrepreneur, or as a farmer, that's usually a family business, right? Where they may have additional labor as well or additional employees within the group, but it's often families. And that's, uh, 
that's a, a wonderful thing to be a part of. And for us to help, and that, that's who we work with, right? We're working with these types of folks to grow their business. And that's an exciting place for us and an exciting uh, value to bring to to our little section of the economy is that we can truly create win-win outcomes. And these families are asset land, asset rich, and probably cash poor in that they don't have a way to monetize or get any value out of the land that they have. And so I suspect there's some good opportunities for them then to upgrade what they're doing and, and be able to get some cash to put their kids through school or what other other things. So sounds like uh, really exciting. So just remind us, where's the best place for people to go to learn more? I know you told me about your LinkedIn profile, which is one place, and I'll have a link to that in there and remind everybody about the website that they should go to learn more. Yeah. AcreTrader.com is our website. Pretty easy to find. Yep. And there's a ton of material on there. And I'll have links to all that in the show notes. But now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstance leading up to it and then tell us your story. So I spent about a dozen years in equity investing, both as a sell-side analyst and as a buy-side investor. And uh, I worked at a, a fund that's about a billion dollars of asset center management. I spent a good amount of my very, very concentrated, very deep dive investing. I uh, spent a lot of my time on the short side. So betting against companies. And that can be a really painful part of your career, right? Generating alpha is is hard. Generating absolute returns, dollar returns is even harder when markets mm -hmm. are going up. But, you know, it's an important part of many strategies to be able to hedge within your portfolio. So I had lots and lots of bad and really bad investments over the years. But one sticks out because there was a lesson learned there. So lots of folks will tell you about betting against frauds and how dangerous that is. Because as an investor, you may have 10 or 20 stocks in your portfolio that you're shorting and betting against. The people running that fraud, they got one bet and it's that fraud and they can outlast you. And so as a general statement, you know, we didn't chase a ton of frauds. We chased like, okay, businesses being valued as great businesses where the numbers were too high. There was one particular company. They were a healthcare software business. And I had a thesis. We as a company had a thesis around the macro developments, both cyclical and secular headwinds that this company faced. And the company is a fast growth software company, right? So to top off the fact that like, hey, there's these real pressures on their business that we don't think the rest of Wall Street is seeing or the, the, the investment world is seeing, the stock is really expensive. The valuation is crazy, crazy high. So anyway, started digging into it. I started meeting with the company's CEO. And this guy was unbelievably impressive, like really, really good. And started like doing, you know, the deep digging that we would do on the second and third level bench inside of the company, the people that work there and their culture. And it was like, all right, this is a really well run business, but hey, you know, we still think these problems exist for their business as a whole. And so I then began to make, well, actually I can stop and say, long story short, I lost most of the principal because the stock almost doubled on us before we covered and it kept running. So lost most of the principle of that particular investment. And there were two primary learnings there. Right? Mm. One is uh, I felt myself gravitating towards that valuation argument. And valuation is not a thesis. 
Valuation is an important part of your work, right? And it, it can support an investment decision, but you never lead a conversation by saying this business, this stock is expensive or it's cheap. That is not a reason to invest. Stop in the story, right? And again, it can be a supporting piece of information. It should be a part of your calculation in terms of position sizing, et cetera. However, in this case, I felt myself more and more leaning on that as part, it became part of my thesis. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe that stuff's not that great, but it's still really expensive. So number one is like a terrible flaw of letting that creep into the thesis. And the second was don't bet against really good management teams. And then the inverse is true as well, right? Don't bet for really bad management teams because they can absolutely and often do determine the outcome. Hmm. And this guy kicked my butt and then some. They put up, despite all these pressures where we were, you know, proud, right? He's like, oh, the, the operation was a success, but the patient died anyway, right? It's like the thesis ended up being good, but because of these two things, one, the street didn't care about valuation as a home run business. And two is this team executed so well. So be cautious in investing around management teams and around valuation. Those things can really be overlooked when making important investments. And where is that? Is that company just continuing to roll or do they hit any hard times over the years? Or They've hit some hard times, certainly. I would say the stock is still probably 2x higher than it was where we initially invested. Mm. And it went up a whole lot after we covered. It's come back down some, but I'm, I'm rooting for them. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm cheering them on. I, I hope that they are super successful. Yes. It's something about when a CEO kicks your ass that you think, okay, yeah, okay, pretty good. Maybe I'll, I'll share a couple of quick things. I think I love what you said. Valuation is not a thesis. And I, I've actually never heard that before. And I teach valuation and been in the industry for a long time. So I really like that. I'm going to talk to my students on Friday about that. But now, on the other hand, the valuation, as you said, can be supporting. So one of the companies I've been looking at with, and I've been talking to my students and they're doing valuations of is Toyota. Toyota is like getting hammered because they're not joining the EV bandwagon exactly the way everybody wants them to do. And they're getting a bad score in their ESG because they're exposed. Some of their factories could be exposed to floods. You know, yeah. Thailand, the whole, whole country where they have a huge number of factories, the whole country was flooded in 2011. So, you know, I see that the valuation now has been pushed down to one times price to book, meaning you're getting all the future value basically pretty much for free. And it's a long history of the, it's the number one car company in the world, pretty much the most consistently profitable and well-run company. So betting against it, you know, and so my question to you in that particular case, like valuation feels like a thesis, but I think what you're saying is if there's not other fundamental things that are driving that, then valuation is just going to be a tool. It's just going to be another input. How would you help us apply what you learned from that to, let's say, a situation like I've just described? So I would suggest that valuations should inform your position size. Right. Like you've got a hundred theoretical dollars. Your maximum position size is five dollars. That price to book, price to earnings, EV to EBITDA, however you want to look at valuation, a large spectrum of metrics and measurements, that should help you determine whether that okay, you have a thesis 
And then the valuation can determine, is my position size zero, one, two, three, four, five, right? But that can help drive the sizing of the position anywhere from literally, I'm not going to do anything, I'm not going to invest, to I'm going to make it the biggest investment I've ever made. So the valuation can and should, in my opinion, influence your position size. But like, if you just tell me Toyota has a one times book ratio, like, so what? Like, they could go destroy book value. Like, that book value could be cut in half in the next three years. I'm, I'm making this up, mm, obviously. Yep, yep, like, yep. like that's, a, that's not a reason to invest or to not invest. Now, mm. I think they can double book value, or I think they can maintain book value, and capture, we can capture additional future growth because of X, Y, and Z reasons. This becomes interesting. Right. Yep. Yeah. We had, like, a rule of, like, we discuss valuation of an investment at the end. Right. Like we're going to talk about the thesis and everything else. And then the last slide or slides in your 50 or 100 page investment deck can be about valuation because it informs how, how big we're going to go here. Do we want to go make a big, big investment or a small investment or, or none? So let's go back in time. And now think about a young person who is in your shoes now and go back in time and look at it based upon what you learned from the story that you've just told us and what you've continued to learn. What would be one action that you would recommend that that listener of ours should take to avoid suffering the same fate? I don't invest in single securities. Right? Like, like as a professional doing it for 12 or 15 hours a day. Okay. That's interesting. Maybe you can convince yourself you're smarter than the market. And then like maybe, maybe, maybe over a period of the next five or 10 years, you'll actually outperform the market. Otherwise, statistically speaking, it is unbelievably unlikely that you, Mr. and Mrs. Investor, over the next decade are going to beat the market by casually investing in single stocks, as an example. So I you know, would always heavily encourage people to invest in ETFs. Then if you want to go gamble, right, and you know that the odds are stacked against, like people go to casinos all the time. Mm. And like, like they factually, the odds are stacked against you, but they enjoy doing it. Okay, that's the same thing in public markets. If you enjoy researching and you enjoy the dig and you enjoy investing in individual securities and you know that the odds are stacked against you and you're going to underperform, like like statistically, you're very likely to underperform the index, go have fun. Knock yourself out. Have a good time. And if you really, really love it and you do that for a while, make it your career. Go all or none is sort of the, the way I would feel about investing in stocks and bonds and probably most things in life. Like don't, don't be half committed to stuff. It's a uh, great advice. So let me ask you, what's a resource that you'd recommend for our listeners? For general investing, there's not enough reading you can do. Like actually reading, if you want to be a good investor, like understanding what CFAs read is a good start. So the Swezer study books for CFA level one, if you're already getting bored, you th this isn't for you. If you go read those books and you find them interesting, you should go invest more. It sounds like fun. If you don't, don't tell me about, oh, I bought McDonald's because it was $100 out of $115. Like that does nothing for either of us. So study, man. Like if you like it, go study and don't go study the heady stuff. Don't read heroics books about Warren Buffett. Like you should still study Warren Buffett too. There's, there's right. a lot to work there. But you know, you're, you're unlikely to be that kind of a hero. So don't fancy that you're going to be the next Warren Buffett unless you are willing to go study and learn a lot. Carter, you're the first one to recommend buying the CFA study guides like Swesser as an example. And I have a funny story about that. In 1995, when I was studying CFA, 
I was among a small group of people in Thailand that were doing that. And Mr. Swesher, the guy, I don't remember, I don't remember much, but I remember the guy came to Thailand and he arranged an event where he would do a weekend crash course for us, like he did in the US. And there was about four people in that room. <laughs> and he I remember the last thing he said to us is, I'll never come back to Thailand, but it's really nice to meet all of you guys. <laughs> and uh, but definitely having been involved in CFA all of my career, past CFA in 2001 was a volunteer in our CFA society when we started in 2003 and rose to become a board member, a vice president, and then a two-term president of the CFA society. Tonight, I have a course I'm teaching about CFA ethics. I just think that it's great advice. So if you're out there and you're thinking about, you know, I really want to, you know, I'm an engineer and I've been having some fun and all that, dig into that course material because it really is the best contemporary compendium of material that you should really know. And if you find that fascinating, then take level one and pass level one. You know, you, you may decide that that's all I need and that's fine, but great advice. And that's very unique advice. Okay. Last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? I would have to break that into two parts, yep. right? My number one goal as a person is to spend more time with my children, our children. So I, I'm too obsessive about work and this rules my life. So yeah, that's the easy number one goal that I try to continuously optimize towards is recognize mm -hmm. my kids will hopefully be in my, I expect them to be in my life for the rest of my life. I do not believe that my current job will do the same. So, uh, you know, when I'm, when I'm 90, I, I don't think I'll be working at this company. Oh, I, maybe I will be, but so optimizing towards family is incredibly important goal of mine this next year. Mm. Yeah. And my, I brought my mother to live with me my, when my father passed away about seven years ago and she's 85 years old. So we've spent seven years of our lives together every single day. And neither of us expected that we would be in each other's lives to this extent, to the end of our lives. But as you've just said, no matter jobs come and go, businesses come and go, we make them successful, we sell them, we grow out of them, whatever. But if we can do right by our family throughout all the period of time, it means that all of our life, our family is a great component of it. So that's a great, great reminder for everybody, for everybody listening and viewing, you know, you're never, ever going to regret investment in family relationships. It's just something that I highly, highly encourage everybody. And Carter, I think you've given us a good reminder of that. So listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. If you've not yet joined that mission, just go to myworstinvestmentever.com and join the free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter to reduce risk in your life. As we conclude, Carter, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of Ace Dots Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? This has been fantastic. I, I sincerely appreciate you, Andrew. I appreciate having you on. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today. We added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.